This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Your Radio Doctor and their guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPHT or Odyssey. Your Radio Doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, products, physicians, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on Your Radio Doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. I'm always striving to live my healthiest life, so I need a health plan that has my back. With Independence Blue Cross, I get access to the largest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free virtual doctor visits 24-7. Plus, with premiums as low as $0 per month, I can stay on top of my health and keep my budget in check. Independence has given me coverage I can count on, and they'll do the same for you. Learn more about your coverage options at ibx.com. Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. From the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter. Always live on the free Odyssey app. It's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Saturday afternoon at 5. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Listen, seven months or ten months is an absolutely exceptional, exceptionally short time frame to produce this vaccine. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good evening and welcome to your radio doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. For most of us, the spring is a welcome time of year when we get back out to the sunshine, long walks, bike rides, but not for those people who have difficulty with mobility that we might take for granted. Parkinson's disease, it manifests with a tremor or shaking of the hands and feet, rigid muscles, and slow shuffled walking. It's one of the most common neurodegenerative diseases in adults and numbers of cases are growing. Here to bring great insight into the topic is a learned scholar, Dr. Daniel Kremens for Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. Dr. Kremens is an Associate Professor of Neurology and the Vice Chair for Education at the Sidney Kimmel Medical College of Thomas Jefferson University, where he is also the Co-Director for the Comprehensive Parkinson's Disease and Movements Disorder Center. We're so fortunate to have you with us as our guest, Dan. Welcome. Thanks, Marianne. It's an important time. You know, April is Parkinson's Disease Awareness Month, so I'm thrilled to be here for it. Yes, it's it's so important. And we're going to talk a little bit about the, the rising um, cases uh, or numbers of cases that is fascinating and not good, obviously. So let's start with the definition, Dan, of Parkinson's disease itself. So Parkinson's disease, as you mentioned, is the second most common uh, neurodegenerative condition in the world, and it's actually the fastest growing brain disease in the world. And we can talk a little bit later about why that might be. Parkinson's disease is characterized by both motor and non-motor symptoms. So the motor symptoms that everybody thinks about are tremor, but the fact of the matter is for many people with uh, Parkinson's disease, tremor, they either don't have it or it's not that big an issue. The main symptoms in Parkinson's disease are uh, slowness or what we call bradykinesia and rigidity or stiffness. And as disease advances, postural instability or balance problems are also um, very common. So that's what characterizes it from a symptomatic standpoint. But there's also non-motor symptoms that a lot of times people don't think about, such as anxiety, depression, constipation, 
REM sleep behavior disorder, loss of sense of smell. So there's all these things as well that people don't really uh, realize are associated with Parkinson's disease. It's characterized in the brain by loss of cells that make a neurotransmitter or chemical called dopamine. Now, dopamine has many functions in the brain, but in Parkinson's disease, these cells die in a part of the brain that are associated primarily with movement. Mm. So when you have the loss of these cells that make dopamine, that begins to affect the person's movement. And that's what results in that slowness and stiffness. And I, I guess too, um, dopamine has many roles, as you say, it's important in movement, but so, some of the other roles that it plays, memory, what else, Dan? Uh, so um, it's very often associated with pleasure uh, and addiction and things like that, but these are really affecting different areas of the brain uh, than we see in Parkinson's. Although, um, you know, one of the things that we may talk about at some point uh, the medications in Parkinson's disease, and sometimes because of the uh, effects of dopamine on other parts of the brain, some people with Parkinson's disease actually can develop what we call impulse control disorders with exposure to some of the dopamine medicines. And that's a result of uh, stimulation of different dopamine receptors than the receptors in Parkinson's disease. So I guess it's like any other what we call it, as you say, a neurotransmitter, uh, a chemical that sends a signal from the brain to the body part that you want to respond, uh, or it's a chemical messenger, I guess. And and you talk about the evolution. Our, our system um, is designed to reward us when we do something that's good for us, to help us to survive, like eating and drinking. It tastes good. It feels good. So you want to do it again. I guess that's why we get addicted to sugar and such. Uh, and, and to reproduce. And all those signals... Like lactation, I understand dopamine can uh, uh, help with uh, nursing. Um, but if you have the right amount, like anything in life, life is about to have the right amount of dopamine, you're happily motivated and focused. And if it's too low, and I guess in somebody who has Parkinson's disease, um, that's when they have memory loss, mood swings that you described. And if it's too, and if it's high, that's the euphoria piece that people get from using drugs. Right. Just it's really a- more about the. It's really more about the different dopamine receptors. There are, are many, many different dopamine receptors, and some dopamine receptors are in pleasure parts of the brain. In Parkinson's disease, the dopamine receptor that's primarily impacted is what we call the D1 receptor, which is associated primarily with movement, and then also some D2 and D3 which are a little bit more of uh, the mood and pleasure type ones. And like impulse control, that sort of thing. Right. I see. So what can we learn from the history of Parkinson's disease? Because uh, we chatted the other day, great conversation, and I learned things that that really make sense that I think people would learn from. The history of Parkinson's disease is a fascinating story. It begins with, you know, so um, if you think about it, you know, a lot of, uh, diseases are um, described in very ancient literature, such as the Bible and, and things like that. But we really don't see that in Parkinson's disease. You don't, there, there's some old Chinese literature and some old Indian literature that discusses what sounds like Parkinson's disease. 
but you really don't see it emerging in the literature until 1817 when James Parkinson's wrote his seminal text on the shaking palsy in which he describes six patients with Parkinson's disease um, and um, only three of whom were his actual patients. The other couple were people that he spoke to on the street when he was walking in London on his way to work. And despite the fact that they weren't his patients, he got to know them well enough that he wrote this remarkable description of the disease where he described the uh, seminal motor symptoms as well as describing a number of the non-motor symptoms in Parkinson's disease. Um, and it wasn't until later in the 1860s and 70s when Charcot is a very famous mm. neurologist read these papers and said, oh, we should call this Parkinson's disease because he was the first guy to describe it. And then um, it wasn't until 1912 when Fritz Levy, or once he moved to the United States to escape Nazi persecution, changed his name to Frederick Louis. Uh, in 1912, he described Lewy bodies, which are the pathological hallmark of Parkinson's disease. When you look at the brains of people with Parkinson's disease, you see these Lewy bodies, particularly in an area called the substantia nigra, which is the part of the brain that affects movement. What's fascinating, though, is you also see these Lewy bodies in other parts of the body, including the gut. So some people have postulated that Parkinson's might begin in the gut and then move up into the brain uh, later on. And, that, um, and that's been a pretty exciting area. It wasn't until the 19, late 1950s and early 1960s that um, scientists discovered that dopamine was the actual neurotransmitter that was involved in Parkinson's disease. And it was a result of um, these discoveries that led to a Nobel Prize for Arvid Carlson, and then later led to the development of carbidopa levodopa, which is the most effective medicine we have for Parkinson's disease. Uh, the value of time, the, the luxury of time to watch a condition evolve and uh, learn about it. And the Lewy bodies, Lewy body dementia, people have heard about that. And uh, so it's really right. fascinating. So mm -hmm. Lewy body dementia is, um, a, is a subset of conditions. So we have Parkinson's disease, which is characterized by those uh, tremor rigidity, slowness, and postural instability and some of the non-motor symptoms. And when you look at the brain, you'll see these Lewy bodies. But that's not Lewy body dementia. Right. There's Parkinson's disease, and then there's Parkinsonism. And Parkinsonism is a grab bag term for a number of conditions that look like Parkinson's disease early on, but then evolves differently. And um, these Parkinsonisms um, often do have Lewy bodies in the brain or other parts of the body. And it's where these Lewy bodies are distributed in the brain that ends up sort of describing the disease. So for example, in Lewy body dementia, we see more of these Lewy bodies in the cortex of the brain or sort of the thinking area of the brain as opposed to uh, in Parkinson's disease where they're more in that substantia nigra or basal ganglia area that I talked about. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, just off the cuff, we'll keep going in a different direction, but when you talk about Lewy bodies being found in the gut, I wonder then all this uh, – Novel, or novel concern and, and people question about the microbiome, if that would influence what happens. And uh, it's, it's all evolving. It'll be fascinating to see what we learn. 
Sure. Well, the gut plays a critical role in Parkinson's disease. Uh, we know that uh, the gut is highly dysfunctional in Parkinson's disease. And as yeah. I mentioned before, if you do a biopsy of the gut of someone with Parkinson's disease and you stain it appropriately, you will see these Lewy bodies all over uh, the gut. And um, there's actually some uh, patients uh, who actually have bacteria in their gut that can actually eat levodopa, the most potent medicine we have for heart disease. It's a rare thing, but that actually exists. So um, the gut is highly influential in Parkinson's disease. And almost all of our medicines in Parkinson's disease actually work through the gut. So the gut has a lot of influence in Parkinson's disease. The key to a man's heart is the gut. (laughs) (laughs) So I was also fascinated when, uh, you know, I'm reading up whenever I do a topic, I I read everything I can and and I see the statistic that the risk we're seeing uh, rising numbers that in 1990 thereabouts that globally there were 2.6 or two and a half million new cases and uh, by 2016 that number went from two and a half million to six million cases. What's your thinking there? It's the fastest growing neurodegenerative disease. Yeah. So. The common thought there is that this is probably related to pollution. We don't know why people get Parkinson's disease. We think it's a combination (laughs) of both genetics. So we know there are some pure genetic forms of Parkinson's disease, but those are pretty rare. So we think it's a combination of genetics and pollution. Why pollution? Because I mentioned before, we start to see it in the literature in the 1800s, and that's when the Industrial Revolution comes around. And we've seen just an explosion of Parkinson's disease with the introduction of certain chemicals and pesticides and solvents into the environment. And we know that the most polluted countries in the world have the highest rate uh, of Parkinson's and is increasing the fastest. For example, in China, uh, the uh, increase in Parkinson's disease has been about by 116%. The numbers are are shocking. Mm. And this uh, seems to be largely related to uh, pollution. There are a number of uh, risk factors such as pesticides and solvents. One solvent in particular, trichloroethylene, has been associated in one small study with a 500% uh, increase in your risk of developing Parkinson's disease if you work or are exposed to this chemical, which is in many, many, many things uh, in the United States. Mm. And And the other interesting thing is that we're seeing it in younger and younger people. We Let's take a little break and we'll come back and as we learn more about Parkinson's disease and some of its faces. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. At Independence Blue Cross, we believe in giving you the tools you need to pursue your healthiest life. From premiums as low as $0 per month to health discounts and cash rewards, it pays to have coverage with Independence. With the strongest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free 24-7 virtual doctor visits, you can feel confident that quality care is always within reach. Learn more about your coverage options at ibx.com. When Recovery Centers of America at Devon opened its campuses on the main line and in South Jersey, they offered a new approach, local addiction treatment led by an expert, caring team of professionals. RCA has since helped thousands and leads the way in innovative programs and exceptional inpatient and outpatient care, all in a beautiful setting that allows for healing and recovery. RCA answers the phone and admits patients 24-7, 365, including the holidays. All admitted patients and staff are routinely tested for COVID-19. Call now at 1-888-RECOVERY. That's 1-888-RECOVERY. 
When we ask questions, we make sure they're the big ones. Like how can the healthcare industry earn the trust of patients? And what if your health outcomes and access to care weren't defined by your skin color, sexuality, gender, or zip code? At Genentech, we're removing barriers and partnering across the medical community to make clinical research as diverse as the world we serve to ensure communities have access to healthcare. Learn how we are working to make healthcare more equitable at gene.com slash askbiggerquestions. And we're back on Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Dan Kremens from Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. And we're learning an awful lot about Parkinson's disease. Dan, we were talking about the risk factors and the growing number of cases of Parkinson's disease. Um, it's interesting to me that I'm reading that about 25% of the cases are found in people under age 65. That's, that's a lot of exposure to pollution or whatever it is. So you're saying too that there's probably some genetic component. Is there an increased risk if you have a close relative, like a parent or a sibling? Right. So probably the number one risk for Parkinson's disease is having a first degree relative who has it. So the risk of developing Parkinson's disease over the course of a lifetime is probably about 3%. If you have a first degree relative who has it, your risk doubles to about 6 to 7%. So it's still not a huge risk factor, but it is the, the strongest one we know. Now, there mm-hmm. are some risk factors um, in individual populations that are much higher than that, and that includes certain specific genetic risk. So there are a few genes that have been described in Parkinson's disease that convey a very strong risk. Um, the What we think happens in Parkinson's disease, all of us have a um, protein in us called alpha-synuclein. And for reasons that we don't quite understand, either related to genetics or environmental exposures, we believe the alpha-synuclein changes shape and clumps together and forms these pathological features, which are the Lewy bodies. And um, so that was found out back in the very late 1990s because there was a family in Indiana where um, everyone was getting Parkinson's disease in their very early 50s. And as genetic techniques came around, it was found that they had a um, a, – problem in their gene that's actually makes the alpha-synuclein. And that was the first association with alpha-synuclein and Parkinson's disease. And right around the very same time, another group of scientists discovered that the Lewy bodies are actually made up of alpha-synuclein. So those two things came together to tie this into Parkinson's. And that also got the whole notion of genetics in Parkinson's going, because prior to that, there really wasn't thought to be this genetic association. Since then, a large number of other genes have been described. The two most common ones are something called LARC2 and the GBA gene. Now, these are genes that are found primarily in people of Ashkenazic Jewish descent, but they can also be found in other populations as well. And uh, we don't understand exactly why they lead to problems with Parkinson's disease. And this is an area of of great uh, interest, both from research and from a drug development stance. There are, um, for example, in LARC2, that's a protein that we know goes uh, bad. So again, they're developing drugs targeting that LARC2 uh, protein that the gene makes to see if that can um, influence the course of Parkinson's disease. And what's interesting is even in people without the LARC2 mutation, 
we know that there's a problem with their LARC2 protein. So um, these drugs that are being developed for LARC2 might work for people with um, what we call idiopathic Parkinson's disease or Parkinson's disease where we don't have that association with genes. Mm -hmm. So in essence, there is no specific cause that we can link to, but there are these other issues that are associated with uh, Parkinson's disease. And then we talk about the word comorbidities. That's uh, issues or conditions that are found um, in the presence of Parkinson's, but no causal effect. So we talk about people who have excess uh, BMIs or they're carrying extra weight, or they have the metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes. Obviously, a history of traumatic brain injury is not good. You talk, we talk about Muhammad Ali and the repeated uh, hits to his head. But history of melanoma, tell, tell us what the theory is on that one. Well, we really don't know what the theory on that one is. We just know that there's a strong association between uh, people who have melanoma are at a higher risk of getting Parkinson's disease and people with Parkinson's disease are at a higher risk of getting melanoma. And the one common feature between the two of them is that the cells in the brain that make dopamine and back in the substantia nigra pars compacta contain melanin and the uh, skin cells that are affected by melanoma also contain melanin. So there's some common mm -hmm. uh, background factor, but we really don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. Through the cells, when they're when stimulated, that melanin, I guess, rises to the surface and makes us tan or, or changes the color of our skin after sun exposure. And I guess, too, does that lead, is, is genetic testing for any kind of hereditary pattern, is that readily, readily available? And do you target, say, people who have Parkinson's at a younger age, I would think they're a little bit more likely to have a genetic find. Yes? No? Right. So so people um, with what we call young onset Parkinson's disease, which is typically Parkinson's disease that develops before the age of 50, uh, tend to have um, uh, a higher predominance of uh, gene, uh, genetic causes in, in that group, such as that mm -hmm. family I told you about uh, back in the 19th, the Contorsi family, they were called from Aww. Indiana. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, about 10% of cases occur before the age of 50, and a lot of those people get tested, and it turns out that they don't have uh, a, a gene. So it doesn't mean that every young onset patient has a gene. And, in fact, a lot of older patients, now that we're testing them, uh, we're finding genetic causes. So um, as genetic testing becomes more readily available, uh, we're doing a lot more genetic testing. There is a study going on right now called PD generation, which is um, mm. a study that's being done by um, uh, the Parkinson's Foundation that is looking to expand the understanding of the genetics of Parkinson's disease. So we're doing uh, testing through that of many patients, um, and we're finding probably about 20% of the patients that we test um, turn out to be positive. In addition, there's commercial testing uh, these days that people can do, testing mm -hmm. such as 23andMe and, and those sort of things uh, mm -hmm. that some people will do on their own and find out that they have this risk. I guess uh, what goes through my mind, uh, two things. On a regular basis, no matter what the topic, learn your family history. Because if you find that your close relatives, first degree, we always remind people means a parent or a sibling, aunts, uncles, cousins, they're second degree or, or a little bit uh, more distant in the family tree. But does is there any advantage to learning you have the gene or the mutation, I should say? Because if so, uh, does early therapy or does Parkinson's just have a mind of its own? So 
just because you carry the gene doesn't mean you're going to get uh, Parkinson's disease. So, for example, with the LARC2 gene, depending on what study you read, your risk is probably anywhere from 20% to some studies suggesting it may be as high as 50% of developing Parkinson's disease at some point in your lifetime. But you don't know when and you don't know whether you're going to be in that 20 to 50%. Um, and that's one of the reasons why um, it's important to um, do more research on this so we know. You know, one reason that it might be um, worth uh, knowing is that there are going to be studies looking at people who carry these genetic risks to see if there are things that we can do to intervene early that would potentially That's what, that was my question yeah, yeah that mm -hmm. would potentially slow or or prevent the development of parkinson's disease i mean mm -hmm. to the extent that we have any evidence of our ability to influence parkinson's disease probably the number one thing is exercise um, so if I carried one of these genes, I think that I would probably be engaging in fairly aggressive um, aerobic exercise um, because I think that has the best data that you could potentially uh, influence your Parkinson's disease. And I was, that was my next question. Are there any protective factors that in health and wellness, caffeine consumption seems to have a positive influence? Of course, that doesn't mean you drink a gallon of coffee a day or tea, but Cigarette smoking. We're not going to advise people do that, even though there there seems to be a little maybe bubble gum or chocolate cigarettes, but not yeah. not the kind that you inhale and puff. How about statins? Yeah, it's a fascinating uh, it's a fascinating thing. It's called the the, the nicotine paradox. So um, so as you mentioned, things that have been shown to be associated with a lower risk of developing Parkinson's disease uh, include um, caffeine. So you know we recommend that people um, can drink you know, two cups of coffee a day or caffeinated beverage. The data seems to be best in coffee for whatever reason, but it's probably the caffeine. And then as you mentioned, nicotine. So uh, there are um, well-developed uh, epidemiological studies that show that um, smoking, uh, particularly heavier smoking, uh, reduces your risk of Parkinson's by maybe up to 40%. And this is thought to be um, uh, probably related to something with nicotine, although that's been looked at. And so far, we haven't been able to find much to mm. use nicotine without smoking as a, as a protective um, thing. So we don't, we don't really know why. And of course, we definitely don't recommend that people smoke because the health risks associated with smoking are uh, much greater than the risk of developing Parkinson's sure. disease. So we don't have any specific diagnostic test, like a blood test or uh, any kind of imaging. And so we bank on a good history and physical exam to make the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease for the most part. But are there any biomarkers? And we say that are there any blood tests or in in the in research that are showing promise that in the near future maybe we will have some right. specific way to tell? Sure. So as you mentioned, the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease right now is a clinical diagnosis. Although there is um, an imaging test that we will sometimes use, which is called a DAT scan. Remember, I mentioned to you that Parkinson's disease is characterized by the loss of dopamine. And the DAT scan is a nuclear medicine study where you're given a small dose of a radioactive labeled substance that goes to the brain and binds to dopamine transporters in the brain. And this gives us a, a sort of gross look at the health of the dopamine system in the brain. Interesting. So if you have um, a 
characteristic tremor and your DAT scan shows that you have decreased dopamine, that is highly suggestive that you may have Parkinson's disease. Mm -hmm. Now there are some other new tests that are being developed. There's one that's just been approved recently by the FDA that involves skin biopsies where they uh, do biopsies of the skin and they look for that alpha-synuclein that I talked about uh, in the skin. And other people are looking at some other ways to look for the alpha-synuclein, including um, looking at tears. Uh, Dr. Mark Liu out in California has uh, been doing some really interesting work looking at tears. Uh, Charles Adler out in the Mayo Clinic has been looking uh, at some uh, really interesting work with salivary glands. So there's a number of other targets to see if we can find that alpha-synuclein as well. Yeah. Let's take a little break. And when we come back, we should, uh, I think, focus on some of those uh, classic features that are related to motor dysfunction as well as non-motor. And now for your real champion. I call this segment, Take Me Home to the Place I Belong. In 1971, country music legend John Denver released a hit single called Take Me Home, Country Roads, which has become a symbol of West Virginia. Well, this is a tale of a man who longed for his home far away at a time when he needed to be there most. The story begins on a Thursday morning in August 2019. A plane was leaving Philadelphia and headed to Charleston, West Virginia. One of the passengers was Charlene Vickers. Charlene is the director of community investment for the healthcare company called Amara Health Caritas. She was traveling with Worth colleagues, Aaron Glassy and Maureen George, headed to West Virginia to host a health education program the next morning. The three women were buckled in their seats and prepared for takeoff when suddenly the flight was brought to a halt because of a maintenance issue. Passengers were instructed to deplane and wait at the gate for updates. While sitting in the terminal, Charlene noticed a young soldier in uniform sitting against the wall with his head down, and several other passengers were talking to him. Sergeant Seth Craven had begun his long journey from Kabul, Afghanistan, three days before. This last leg of the trip would bring him to the bedside of his wife, for the cesarean section of their first baby. Seth was serving in the West Virginia National Guard and had made several requests for this occasion, feeling very grateful that he was finally granted leave. He was booked for a flight to West Virginia the night before, but it was canceled due to a storm. His prospects looked even dimmer now because this Thursday morning flight resulted in four separate delays before it was finally canceled late in the day. Adding to the distress, the inclement weather from the night before led to a shortage of rental cars. Seth's only option was a flight the next morning on Friday, but had missed the C-section that was scheduled for 5.30 that morning. When Charlene learned of his plight, she explained that she had parked her car at the airport. Knowing that they had to make it to West Virginia by the next morning for their work event, she and her colleagues made the decision to drive and extended an invitation for Seth to join them. At first, he hesitated, but as the three women walked to grab a bite before they left the airport, Seth came running through the concourse and said, please don't leave me. He left his luggage with the plane, which would be leaving the next day. The road trip was not easy through heavy storms on pitch dark roads through the mountains in Virginia. Charlene described Seth as a true gentleman. He rode shotgun and helped navigate through the eight hour trip. He even pumped gas at every stop. Having four people in the car made it a little easier to stay alert, 
especially since they had fun with debates about the Eagles and the Dallas Cowboys, along with what radio stations they'd choose. Guess that's the line in the song, Radio Reminds Me of My Home Far Away. Fortunately, Seth did not have to live out the lyrics to say, driving down the road, I get a feeling that I should have been home yesterday. Seth made it home at the stroke of midnight with a few hours to spare before they left for the C-section at 4.30 a.m. Charlene explains that sometime later, Seth's wife recounted that when she opened the door, Seth fell to his knees, put his hands on her belly, and they were both brought to tears. Fortunately, the three women had a destination that was only another 30 minutes away. Seth was so grateful that he called them later on Friday to make sure that his new friends also arrived safely and to share the great news that he and his wife welcomed their healthy new baby boy. Friends, this is a story of remarkable kindness, but what's also noteworthy is the trust it must have taken for three women to invite a stranger to share a long ride and for the soldier to put his faith in such an unusual offer. In life, there are givers and takers. Charlene, Aaron, and Maureen live the message of their work for Health Caritas. In Latin, Caritas means charity or love when they offered assistance to help a man in need. And we thank Sergeant Seth Craven for his selfless service to our country. We salute you, Charlene Vickers, Aaron Glassy, and Maureen George, and our man in the military, Sergeant Seth Craven, your real champions. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed anytime, anywhere, at your convenience. Just download the Odyssey app and search Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. I'm always striving to live my healthiest life, so I need a health plan that has my back. With Independence Blue Cross, I get access to the largest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free virtual doctor visits 24-7. Plus, with premiums as low as $0 per month, I can stay on top of my health and keep my budget in check. Independence has given me coverage I can count on, and they'll do the same for you. Learn more about your coverage options at ibx.com. When we ask questions, we make sure they're the big ones. Like when it comes to diseases, can we strive to treat, prevent, and even reverse them? And how can we make healthcare more effective and more affordable? These are the types of questions that can help impact the lives of so many patients, that help push the boundaries of innovation and healthcare for all communities. At Genentech, we are the pioneers of the biotech industry, tackling some of the biggest questions in healthcare. Learn more at gene.com slash askbiggerquestions. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, now Saturday afternoons at 5, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. And welcome back to Your Radio Doctor. We're learning so much about Parkinson's disease with Dr. Dan Kremens from Jefferson. Dan, we talked about some of the features and we mentioned some of the classic or the cardinal features. Let's go into a little more detail if it's all right with you. The tremor, I I was saying to you earlier that we memorize specific things in medical school, phone books worth of information, but I remember they always would say that the tremor, when the person's thumb and fingers come together, it looks like they're pill rolling. And the the slow motion, there's a shuffle with their feet. Um, And the cogwheel rigidity, meaning if you picture trying to pull somebody's arm down from a flexed position, it, it 
moves down in increments. It's it's just fascinating. Right. So those are the, the, the so-called cardinal features, which James Parkinson's described in his essay back in 1817. Um, you know, it's interesting. So it's called a pill rolling tremor because it's actually the motion that pharmacists used to do back in the day before there were machines to make the pill, the pharmacist would roll them by hand in his hand and, and, you know, between the thumb and the forefinger, the tremor in Parkinson's disease. And in fact, all motor symptoms in Parkinson's disease typically begin on one side of the body and may remain there for years before ultimately spreading to involve both sides of the body. And although the tremor, the general public thinks of Parkinson's disease as a tremor disease, about 30% of people with Parkinson's never develop tremor. You know, there are all these different flavors of what we call Parkinson's disease. Um, Tremor dominant is the most common, but there's also one called uh, postural instability gait dysfunction, which is a Parkinson's disease where people really don't have um, much tremor at all, but they have a lot of bounce problems. There's a Parkinson's form of Parkinson's disease that we call rigid akinetic Parkinson's disease, where again, people are very stiff and very slow. It's again, interesting because many people see that very, um, uh, this tremor and, and they, they get very worried. But from a Parkinson's standpoint, people who have a, a, a bad tremor often have a relatively smoother course of their disease than the people who don't have much tremor at all. People who don't have much tremor tend to have more of the non-motor symptoms. So uh, it's interesting. Another feature about Parkinson's disease that could be very troubling for patients is the masked face. You know, a lot of times they have a sort of blank expression and sometimes they're misperceived as being angry or disinterested when they're not at all. It's just the lack of facial expression uh, that we Mm -hmm. see. You know, the fact very. I'm sorry, but there's that very flat, uh, your people are associating the, the lack of expression with a flat affect and they're two different things. Sorry. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and that can really interfere. Another challenge sometimes for a lot of Parkinson's patients is their voices will become very soft. And, Aww. you know, between the mass face and the soft voice, it can become very socially isolating for them. But the great thing Aww. is that there are therapies that you can do to, to work on some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. I remember my adorable mother um, was very healthy. And uh, I remember one day I was talking to her about something very upsetting and she just kind of stared at me. And I thought, oh my gosh, because my mother was very emotional and very warm and, and like the best mother ever. And uh, I took her to her primary care and, you know, tried to kind of wink, wink, could we see a neurologist? And they, the doctor said she had Parkinson-like symptoms. And what we learned shortly thereafter was she had breast cancer that had spread to her brain. And oh. so, uh, you know, because the, the doctor said she is Parkinson-like. And I'm like, but she doesn't have pill rolling. She didn't have anything else. And as you say, that's why it has to evolve. Um, well, also, there are a lot of things like when we talked about earlier about Parkinsonism, there are a lot of conditions that can sometimes mimic Parkinson's And early on in the course of the diseases, particularly with some of the Parkinsonisms, it can be hard to tell, are they Parkinson's disease or Parkinsonism? Right. And sometimes, um, you know, it's just a little bit of tincture of time. We just have to wait and the disease declares itself. But I think it's fascinating, too. You bring up the non-motor features like uh, like the cognitive issues, uh, un- yeah. unable to uh, make sense of numbers or the memory starts to fade. How often do you see visual hallucinations? That's listed as one of the issues. Yeah, so Parkinson's psychosis is very common. Unfortunately, it will generally affect about 50% of people with Parkinson's at some 
a point during the course of their illness. Most of the time, we tend to see it in people with more advanced disease who are on higher doses of medicine, mm-hmm. who may be older. Um, when we see hallucinations very early on in disease, that's when we get worried that this is in fact not Parkinson's disease, but in fact maybe that Lewy body disease or Lewy body dementia that we talked about earlier, because that's a disease that's characterized by Parkinsonism and early hallucinations. Mm. Pain, sensory disturbances, do people get pain that's not related to a specific joint pain or uh, skin issue? Yeah, it's 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 very com- uh, very common in Parkinson's disease, and, and um, it's pain that's often hard to characterize for the patient. Oh. Sometimes it's very specific. It can be cramping pain associated with as the medicines wear off and things like that. But other times it can be sort of a strange numbness or tingling, um, a, a sense of discomfort. Uh, you know, there's a, a, a number of things. So pain is uh, pretty common. We mentioned constipation, how the gut is so dysfunctional. Constipation is an incredibly common non-motor symptom in Parkinson's disease and can be um, quite difficult uh, for patients. Another really fascinating one is REM sleep behavior disorder. REM sleep behavior disorder is when the patient acts out in their sleep, kicks, punch, talks, scream when they're asleep. Having REM sleep behavior disorder in middle age, particularly among men, is actually a real risk factor for developing Parkinson's disease later in life. So um, when we see somebody who has REM sleep behavior disorder, constipation, and another thing that's really common in Parkinson's disease is the loss of sense of smell. Those are probably the three uh, biggest non-motor symptoms in Parkinson's disease, and these can predate the motor symptoms, in some cases by decades, patients talk about, oh, I lost my sense of smell when I was in my 40s, and here they are in their 60s now with Parkinson's disease. So uh, sleep uh, pattern disruption, and think about how many people are now smart enough to go to a, a sleep medicine clinician to, to use CPAP and, and different techniques to help with sleeping, but that's something that I'm sure the sleep doctors keep in mind when they talk to their patients. So we're going to ask them, do you have any issues with uh, your sense of smell? And along with the constipation, the motility or the motion of that assembly line that, that slows down your lower half also can upset the swallowing or dysphagia. We call people feel like their food gets stuck. And then there yep. can be excessive sweating. That all comes under the category of uh, the autonomic nervous system. And maybe sometimes right. some urinary difficulties, right? Passing their water. Right. For some patients, that can be very difficult. One one of the things that's very common and that can be really problematic for patients is what we call neurogenic orthostatic hypotension. So this is when the patient oh. changes position and their blood pressure drops, and it can drop precipitously, leading to falls and passing out and things like that. So for some patients, again, typically with a little bit more advanced disease, that can be really problematic. There are some forms of Parkinsonism, particularly one called multiple systems atrophy, where these uh, autonomic features uh, are uh, often much worse than the Parkinsonism. The patient has a, a great deal of difficulty with their blood pressure. They have urinary problems. They have problems with their bowel and bladder. Uh, they have, uh, and, and uh, they tend to rapidly advance. And um, mm-hmm. so that can be really problematic. And I guess if for those who uh, end up in astute posture, that has to lead to pain because they're they're uh, they're flexing somewhere in their their spine, and then they're they're holding their head up. That it's exhausting to to think about what these poor people have to tolerate. So where are we, Dan, in terms of treatment? Are we making progress? Uh, 
learning well, from. Well, we're making lots of progress. I mean, there's all mm -hmm. sorts of uh, exciting things on the horizon, but still the interesting thing is the mainstay of the treatment of Parkinson's is still carbidopa levodopa, which is a drug that is over 50 years old. Uh, mm -hmm. It uh, came onto the market commercially in the mid-1970s uh, and, and uh, by a, a a brilliant researcher named George Katsias who stuck it out. You know, this is one of the 10 world essential world health organization essential drugs, but it almost never made it to the market because um, when they just discovered levodopa itself, that levodopa could replace dopamine in the brain, it was very hard to give people levodopa because when you gave it orally, um, it gets broken down by the body very quickly and it gives a lot of side effects if you give it by itself. And George Katsias realized this and he admitted he worked at, at a federal facility. So he admitted people to the hospital and he did what we could never do these days. Insurance companies would never let us do it. He would keep the patient in the hospital for months and slowly, slowly, slowly titrate up or increase the medication dose until he got to an effective dose. Uh, and it was miraculous when these people, it was like the movie Awakenings. That's what they were doing when they gave them the leave it open. Suddenly they turned on. So, so am I to understand he kept them in there to try to work on the right level and follow their exam and such. But if, if they couldn't take it orally, how did he give it? No, that's how he gave it. He, he, oh, he did. He, he I got gotcha. it very slowly. When they tried to give larger doses initially to get enough up to the brain, uh, people got very sick and they would just throw it up. But with time, gotcha. if you gave it over months, they could tolerate it because they had tried in the past to inject it. But the, the problem with that was it was um, very difficult to tolerate and it was very short acting. And then, gotcha. they, then they learned that they could add this other drug to it, carbidopa, to the levodopa, and that kept it from being broken down. And so that's our mainstay now that we give carbidopa, levodopa. And, uh, and then in addition, there are drugs called dopamine agonists that look like dopamine to the brain. They trick the brain into thinking it's getting dopamine. There are drugs that help boost the levels of dopamine uh, available, and these include drugs such as Compton inhibitors or MAOB inhibitors. There's a drug called amantadine, uh, which um, works on a different pathway. And then there are very old drugs that we don't use very much uh, anymore called anticholinergics. There's a brand new drug from uh, uh, Japan called istradefalin, and that works on a non-dopamine pathway. That works on something called adenosine. Um, so there's um, lots of uh, medicine options out there for patients with Parkinson's disease. Mm -hmm. So so when we think the really basic science, there are two tracks of on and off uh, nervous or, or nervous system triggers. The ones that constrict your blood vessels, the ones that dilate your blood vessels, the ones that make you sweat, the ones that make you dry. There's, there's a yin and yang for just about everything. So if dopamine has a role and you don't have enough dopamine, we'd either try to replace the dopamine with pretend dopamine, right? right? So L-dopa and levodopa, or we can, we can either add to the plus or take away from the negative. So we can either try to build up the dopamine or get rid of anything that's anti-dopamine, like anticholinergics. And it's that balance that creative people are trying to find. Is that a pretty fourth grade way of explaining it? 
Well, I would say that so, – so in the brain, there are two pathways in Parkinson's disease, the direct, which is an accelerator, and the indirect pathway, which is a break. And the medications tend to work on these different pathways, and the dopamine and the dopamine-like drugs tend to work more on the accelerator pathway, although they have some effect on the break pathway. That newer medicine that I told you about, the estradefiline, the adenosine A2A medicine, that one tends to work more on the break pathway. Gotcha. What we want to do, though, when, whenever we see somebody with Parkinson's disease, is we want to make sure that they're not on a medicine that may be blocking that dopamine pathway. That's something we want to make sure because that can right. be that can be a problem. And sometimes there are even what we call drug-induced Parkinsonism, where the person doesn't actually have Parkinson's disease, but they've been placed on a drug, often a psychiatric drug, that blocks dopamine. And sometimes it blocks it too much, and the person ends up looking like they have Parkinson's disease. But if we're able to reduce or stop the drug, typically the Parkinsonism will reverse. That's why it's so important to do a good history. Let's take a little break and come back for our wrap-up with Dr. Dan Kremens. Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Hi, I'm Pete Vernig, Vice President of Clinical Services for Recovery Centers of America and one of your drug and alcohol experts from RCA. Today I'm here to talk to you about the stigma associated with alcohol use disorder. This stigma can have harmful effects on individuals who are struggling with alcohol use or seeking treatment. The stigma is often fueled by stereotypes and myths that portray individuals with alcohol use disorder as weak or lacking willpower. How certain words are used to describe alcohol-related problems and the people who are affected by them perpetuate this stigma. Stigma is a significant barrier to many people's willingness to seek help for their alcohol problems and can affect how they're treated in all aspects of life, including availability and quality of care. Reducing stigma is a step towards addressing these problems. We can all help alleviate the stigma associated with alcohol-related conditions by consistently using non-stigmatizing, person-first language to describe these concerns and the people who are affected by them. Keep in mind that some words that are commonly used in society, such as alcoholic or alcohol abuse, can be stigmatizing. Stigma can discourage individuals from seeking help or treatment. They may feel ashamed or embarrassed to admit that they have a problem and fear being judged or ostracized by others. As a result, they may avoid seeking help and continue to struggle with their drug or alcohol use, which can lead to serious health problems and even death. If you or your loved one needs help with alcohol or drugs, reach out to Recovery Centers of America at 833-969-0268 or visit rcaradiodoctor.com. That's R-C-A-R-A-D-I-O-D-R.com. We answer the phone and admit patients 24-7. At Independence Blue Cross, we believe in giving you the tools you need to pursue your healthiest life. From premiums as low as $0 per month to health discounts and cash rewards, it pays to have coverage with Independence. With the strongest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free 24-7 virtual doctor visits, you can feel confident that quality care is always within reach. Learn more about your coverage options at ibx.com. Now, your weekly prescription brought to you by Genentech, the science-driven company that pioneered the biotech industry to transform how we treat the world's most complex health problems. Welcome back to your 
last segment of Your Radio Doctor. We call this segment Your Weekly Prescription, brought to you by Genentech. Dr. Dan Cremens, we've learned so much about Parkinson's disease. What do we have to look forward to? What's in the pipeline for therapies? Right. So I think this is actually a really exciting time to be someone who's involved in the treatment of Parkinson's disease patients because we have a number of really uh, interesting and exciting therapies in the pipeline uh, now that are being developed. So first, um, you remember how I talked about there's this protein alpha-synuclein that we think goes bad in Parkinson's. So there are a number of trials going on right now targeting that alpha-synuclein, and they can target it in a number of different ways. There are some vaccination trials where uh, they're trying to vaccinate against the alpha-synuclein. There are some trials using what are called monoclonal antibodies, which are antibodies against the alpha-synuclein. There are trials looking at something called small molecules, which again are a way to attack the alpha-synuclein. So that's um, really a, a potentially very exciting way. And what's great about these uh, potential therapies is that they actually target the disease rather than symptoms. Right now, all our treatments are symptomatic. They don't target the actual actual underlying disease. So um, that's really exciting um, stuff. There are a number of new medicines uh, that are currently being um, developed, including medicines to help um, make the levodopa last longer. There are some very exciting pump therapies where instead of having to take the levodopa orally through that dysfunctional gut, we're working on pumps like they have for diabetes with insulin pumps. Well, we're working on levodopa pumps um, and uh, some dopamine agonist pumps. So hopefully we're going to have those uh, in the not so distant uh, future. There are some exciting surgical interventions. We didn't really talk much about this, but there are surgical treatments for some of the symptoms of Parkinson's disease, including deep brain stimulation and now something called focused ultrasound. And these are particularly good at helping with the tremor that uh, some folks with Parkinson's disease can have and also with a side effect to the uh, Parkinson's medicines called dyskinesias, where you get some extra movements. And these surgical procedures are very good at addressing those. And I know it's not as definitive, but I we did a show about two years ago and I brought a neurologist from Johns Hopkins who is a concert violinist, and he combines music therapy like a metronome to help um, pace the steps of people with movement disorders. And I know that's not as uh, basic science related, but uh, the more we learn, the more we share ideas, uh, the more progress we'll make. Do you, in a few seconds, are, I guess, young patients, are their cases more severe or not necessarily? I mean, uh, since well, actually, young case, young onset Parkinson's tends to be a more benign disease. Oh, the good. problem is that they have it for Forever. so long yeah. that 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 you know, in the end, it can be a little bit more mm-hmm. problematic. But their their disease tends to be much slower than the average person. So you don't necessarily. One other thing, I, sorry, I don't necessarily yeah. jump in and treat them right away. But what were you going to say? Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say the other thing is aside from the. Um, medical treatments, it's really important to bring in our allied health treatments such as physical therapy, speech therapy, uh, you know, these occupational therapy. These things are so important for Parkinson's patients. And and in some ways, the exercise and things like that may even be more important. So I don't want people to forget about that when they think about this. It's not just about the meds. It's these other therapies that are so important as well. We should do a whole show on neuroplasticity that get in there and physical therapy is so vitally important. And I think people are finally realizing that Dan, we want to send our listeners to 
a website that will invite them into clinical trials, where would they find that? So probably the best listing for clinical trials in the United States is clinicaltrials.gov. Uh, which lists all the registered clinical trials, and you can put in Parkinson's disease and see what's available and what's recruiting. Uh, you can certainly reach out to us at Jefferson. We're doing, in our Movement Disorder Center, we're doing a number of uh, clinical trials. I'm involved in a really exciting one looking at some supplements, one called N-acetylcysteine or NAC, which is a natural substance that we think may have some benefit in Parkinson's disease. And then we have a number of drug trials and device trials as well. So um, I hope folks will reach out. I can't emphasize how important it is for patients and their families to be involved in clinical trials because we will never cure this disease without participation in trials. So there'll be clinical trials, plural, clinicaltrials.gov. And if yeah. somebody wanted to be seen in the Jefferson Movement Disorders Clinic, 1-800-JEFF-NOW. And we'll put that in our newsletter and on our website. Dr. Dan Kremens, you are a superstar and helping so many people. Thank you for sharing your time and wisdom. Well, thanks for allowing me to be on during uh, Parkinson's Disease Awareness Month. It's a special time. And hopefully there'll be a time when we don't have this meeting anymore. Yeah. And thanks to people like Michael J. Fox getting the awareness out there. Thanks, yeah. Dan. Sure. Take care. Thank you for listening to Your Radio Doctor every Saturday at 5 p.m. here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Listen to this show. The Real Champion, or any of our shows on odyssey.com. That's A-U-D-A-C-Y.com. A special thank you for the support of our sponsors, Independence Blue Cross, Recovery Centers of America, and Genentech. Remember, the Broad Street Run is early this year, hoping for great weather for the race next Sunday, April 30th. Registration closed in February, but you can still have fun going as a spectator. Thanks to Independence Blue Cross for this annual event. It's April 22nd, and I'm sending special birthday love to my brother-in-law, Steve. I'd also like to offer a giant hug and kiss to welcome our beautiful new baby granddaughter. The angels delivered her on a cloud last week, April 14th, little Miss Grace Patricia Mary. Thank heaven for little girls. Congratulations, Andrew and Nicole and big brother Everett. Please follow us on social media. And while you're at it, send us an email. Tell us about a real champion in your world, or maybe there's a topic you'd like us to review. Send your email to info at yourradiodoctor.net. This is your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, wishing you a happy, healthy, and safe week with the ones you love, and always here to remind you that your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. To contact Dr. Marianne and to listen to today's show as well as past shows, visit yourradiodoctor.com. This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Your Radio Doctor and their guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program has been pre-recorded. I'm always striving to live my healthiest life, so I need a health plan that has my back. With Independence Blue Cross, I get access to the largest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free virtual doctor visits 24-7. Plus, with premiums as low as $0 per month, I can stay on top of my health and keep my budget in check. Independence has given me coverage I can count on, and they'll do the same for you. Learn more about your coverage options at ibx.com. 